Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the show that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto five years ago and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full time. Unchained and Unconfirmed are now published as videos. If you're not yet subscribed to the Unchained YouTube channel, head to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto. Earn up to 8.5% per year on your Bitcoin. Download the Crypto.com app now. Today's guest is Jesse Liu, a partner at Skadden and the former U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia. Welcome, Jesse. Thank you so much, Laura. It's such a pleasure to be here. As the U.S. Attorney General in D.C., you created a threat finance unit focused on financial cybercrimes that threaten national security. There, you headed up the team that prosecute what some believe is the most is the greatest number of cryptocurrency crimes worldwide. Welcome to video, dark scandals, Helix, uh, some involving North Korea's Lazarus Group, Hamas, Al-Qaeda, and ISIS. How did you come to establish the threat finance unit and prosecute all these crimes involving cryptocurrency? Well, I think it was a terrific confluence of events, and I was very lucky to have some incredibly talented colleagues at the U.S. Attorney's Office. Before I was the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia, I was a Deputy General Counsel at the Department of the Treasury, and there my portfolio focused on law enforcement, national security, and international issues. So I did a lot of work with OFAC and FinCEN. Um, And when I went over to the U.S. Attorney's Office, I was already thinking about ways that uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office could work with the Treasury Department in particular, as well as with other government agencies, um, to pursue financial crimes. Um, And there was already a group of uh, AUSAs at the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, who were doing that. Um, And so we worked together, both within the office, um, to increase the number of cases that we're bringing in this very important and cutting-edge area, and also working with the Department of the Treasury and with other parts of the U.S. government um, to bring more cases. Um, And this, of course, as you know, incredibly interesting, cutting-edge area. So it was very exciting for us. Last week, Attorney General William Barr announced the publication by the Department of Justice of a cryptocurrency enforcement framework. What is in the framework and how will it be used? Does it change anything about the way law enforcement has been going after crimes involving cryptocurrency? Well, um, I don't know that it changes anything, but it is very significant in another way, in a number of ways. So, first of all, the cryptocurrency enforcement framework is um, a 70 plus page document issued by DOJ, um, specifically by the Attorney General Cyber Digital Task Force a week ago today on October 8th. Um, and it is a self described comprehensive overview of the emerging threats and enforcement challenges associated with the increasing prevalence 
governance and use of cryptocurrency. It details the important relationships that the Department of Justice has built with regulatory and enforcement partners, both within the U.S. government and around the world, and then outlines the department's response strategies. Um, And for uh, my purposes, um, I personally find the last part uh, where the framework talks about how the department has responded uh, to cryptocurrency the most interesting. And so in general, what are the main takeaways in terms of the significance of the attorney general publishing this document? Well, first of all, I think just the fact that the Attorney General and the Department of Justice has published this document is itself significant. Um, It shows that crypto is something that DOJ is focusing on. And also, perhaps even more important, that DOJ wants the world to know that crypto is something that it's focused on. Um, I pull a couple of uh, key takeaways from the framework. Um, First of all, uh, DOJ seems to be still somewhat skeptical of crypto. Um, So in the first part of the framework, uh, there's a section on legitimate uses of crypto, which runs about a few paragraphs. And then there's a section uh, that is titled illegitimate uses, which runs to more than 11 pages. Um, And if you look closely at the legitimate uses section, it's careful not to come out and actually say that there are any legitimate uses at all. It uses language like, and here I'm quoting, Laura, a cryptocurrency advocates maintain that a decentralized, distributed, and secure cryptocurrency holds great promise for legitimate use. Proponents of cryptocurrency contend that by eliminating the need for financial intermediaries to validate and facilitate transactions, Cryptocurrency has the potential to minimize transaction costs and to reduce corruption and fraud. Some advocates also claim that cryptocurrency may in the future facilitate micropayments. Others believe that the privacy associated with cryptocurrency through raising significant challenges for law enforcement, uh, though raising significant challenges for law enforcement can have valid and beneficial uses. So reading between the lines, um, I think uh, you can detect uh, a certain amount of skepticism about crypto, uh, even uh, though it's not uh, nearly as new as it was at one time. So when it comes to the DOJ, what are the main crimes that they're looking at when it comes to cryptocurrency? Well, the first part of the report or the framework actually lays out um, three categories of crime. So one is the use of crypto as payment or facilitation for illicit activities. So, for example, um, taking crypto as payment for illegal drugs or illegal weapons or child pornography or using crypto um, to engage in terrorist financing. That's category one, according to the framework. The second category, according to the framework, is using crypto to engage in money laundering or hide assets from tax authorities. Um, And the third is crimes against the crypto marketplace itself, like hacking exchanges. Um, And there's a section of the framework that goes through um, all of the laws that DOJ can use to uh, counter this kind of activity. And they're more or less what you would expect, Uh, the fraud statutes, the money laundering statutes, um, the terrorist financing statutes, and the like. And what aspects of the framework do you think crypto entrepreneurs and startups and projects should be aware of? Or, you know, what aspects do you think that they're not focusing enough on? 
Well, so again, as I said before, to me, the most interesting part of the framework is part three, which is titled Ongoing Challenges and Future Strategies. Um, And I think this is where you can glean the answer to the question, where is DOJ going with all of this? Um, And what I found interesting is that in this part of the framework, DOJ identifies what it calls business models and activities that may facilitate criminal activity. And then it has a list of those. Um, It includes cryptocurrency exchanges, P2P exchangers, crypto ATMs, uh, virtual currency casinos, anonymity enhanced cryptocurrencies, which I think is worth talking about in a little bit more detail. Um, And of course, mixers, tumblers, uh, and chain hopping. Um, There are some definite clues in this document to where DOJ um, may focus its attention next. Um, And I think one area for the crypto industry um, and those who are interested in the space to focus is thinking about the business models that um, DOJ has essentially identified uh, as those that it is particularly skeptical of. Um, So uh, I think that's going to be really an area to watch. One of the big recent cryptocurrency cases that involved DOJ was the indictment of four executives at cryptocurrency derivatives exchange BitMEX. And that indictment became public on the same day that the CFTC announced its own charges against BitMEX for allegedly illegally operating a a crypto derivatives exchange and also anti-money laundering violations. And then uh, shortly thereafter, the framework came out. So are these actions an indication that the crypto industry should expect that there are more enforcement actions in which DOJ acts in concert with other agencies to bring criminal charges? Yes, I think definitely the answer is yes. And there are further clues, um, or perhaps even more than clues, almost explicit statements to that effect in the framework. Um, So the framework talks about, it has a specific section that talks about DOJ's uh, partners. And it starts by talking about um, the other U.S. government agencies that DOJ is working with on these issues. And they're more or less the ones that you would expect, um, FinCEN, OFAC, the SEC, the CFTC, um, the OCC. Um, And there's also a lot of discussion about partnering with international organizations like the FATF. Okay, yeah, I think we're going to have to dive a little bit more into what that means and why that's happening. But first, let's take a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto, all in one place. Earn up to 8.5% per year on your BTC. Download the Crypto.com app now to see the interest rates you could be earning on BTC and more than 20 other coins. Once in the app, you can apply for the Crypto.com metal card, which pays you up to 8% cash back instantly on all purchases. Reserve yours now in the Crypto.com app. Back to my conversation with Jesse Liu. So speaking about the um, partnerships that the DOJ is pursuing in order to prosecute some of these cases, I noticed in the framework that it says, quote, the department also has robust authority to prosecute virtual asset service providers and other entities and individuals that violate U.S. law, even when they are not located in the United States. So how can it claim this authority to go after entities not in its jurisdiction and you know, not not only how they, can they claim the authority, but how can they also go after them just from a practical perspective? 
Sure. Um, well, first of all, um, I think it sometimes surprises people, um, but DOJ is extremely aggressive about asserting its uh, jurisdiction, even with respect to uh, conduct that occurs abroad. And so uh, outside the crypto context, there are any number of cases where DOJ has asserted jurisdiction because there was one email that went through a U.S. server, um, because there was one wire that went through a U.S. bank, um, that there were transactions that were conducted in U.S. dollars. So um, the long arm of U.S. law is uh, just that. Um, um, and DOJ is really uh, quite assertive about exercising jurisdiction. And there is a lot of statements in the framework about that, which I think makes very clear that DOJ is prepared to exercise really near global jurisdiction um, in the crypto space. For example, um, with respect to crypto exchanges, uh, the framework says all entities, including foreign located exchanges that do business wholly or in a substantial part within the United States, such as by servicing U.S. customers, such as by servicing U.S. customers. So this could be a situation where um, the uh, people who the, the exchange is located overseas, uh, the servers are located overseas, the people who run it are located overseas, but um, it's it serves U.S. customers. And um, according to DOJ, those exchanges have to register with FinCEN um, and have an agent to the United States for Bank Secrecy Act reporting, filing SARS and the like, and for ex- accepting service of process. And I actually think BitMEX uh, is a pretty good example uh, of this because, um, you know, there was the, it was a little, I think, unclear as to exactly where BitMEX uh, had a physical presence um, to the extent that it had a physical presence. Um, it was registered in the Seychelles with offices in places like Hong Kong and New York City. There are people who ran it who were in the U.S. Um, I believe that it was um, uh, said it could not be used by U.S. persons, um, but uh, the government apparently didn't think that that was enough, um, that it really wanted, uh, wants these exchanges to take active steps to ensure that U.S. persons uh, don't actually use them. Well, yeah, it's interesting um, how they they claim jurisdiction, but um, you know, apparently <laughs> it it is possible and they've done it in the past. One other thing that a lot of people in crypto have been chatting about recently is the global standards regarding anti-money laundering and um, counter-terrorist financing by the FATF uh, and the Financial Action Task Force. And different countries are implementing those global standards differently. There was a recent episode I did about these FATF rules. And in Switzerland, they're apparently making people identify their self-hosted wallets. And I wondered how you thought the FATF regulations would affect enforcement here in the U.S., well, the, the U.S. is is a leader within FATF and is a big booster within FATF. And I think um, one uh, trend that we're seeing, I think, is going to be within the U.S. that um, the regulators and the enforcers are going to be demanding uh, more from uh, the crypto industry with respect to AML, um, BSA, CFT standards. Um, but of course, there are differences across countries. Um, I think the U.S. has been pushing quite hard um, for everyone to apply the same kind of uh, AML, BSA, CFT standards that the U.S. does here. Um, 
So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. One of the points that the framework makes um, is, you know, it sounds a little bit of a note of frustration about how the standards are different from jurisdiction to jurisdiction and how that can uh, sometimes enable uh, illicit activity. Um, yeah, one other thing that I wanted to ask is about what you mentioned earlier, this interest in privacy perverse preserving technologies in the crypto space. Clearly, the DOJ took a side eye, I would say, to, to such technologies. So I wondered what your what your take was on what their approach would be when it comes to privacy and crypto. Well, I think that um, the framework is a signal that the DOJ is deeply skeptical of privacy slash anonymity in crypto. Um, the framework actually calls out um, um, by name Monero, Dash, and Zcash, and it goes on to say, it is a very blunt statement, the department considers the use of anonymity enhanced cryptocurrencies to be a high-risk activity that is indicative of possible criminal conduct, which to me is a pretty blunt statement statement. Um, and then there's a bit of a warning um, to the industry. They say companies that choose to offer AEC products should consider the increased risk of money laundering and financing of criminal activity and should evaluate whether it's possible to adopt appropriate AML CFT measures to address those risks. Um, so taking those two statements together, um, I think that's a clear signal that DOJ is going to be watching anonymity enhanced cryptocurrencies pretty closely um, and that DOJ has some doubt about whether it's possible for that business model uh, to comply with um, AML, uh, CFT, you know, BSA uh, requirements. Um, and so that's an area where I think um, all the signs, at least from the framework, are indicative that there will be um, you know, some, some real scrutiny in that area. Um, the other area that I noticed where the framework um, takes a little bit of a dim view about privacy is that there, the framework devotes a whole page to the EU's General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR, uh, which is a privacy law that's been used by uh, some crypto exchanges to try to withhold data that U.S. criminal investigators uh, try to get through grand jury subpoenas. Um, and the framework makes very clear that DOJ disagrees with the basis for those objections um, and that it will continue to engage with those exchanges to ensure compliance with lawful requests and even, quote, will pursue motions to compel as needed. So that's a pretty clear uh, indication, I think, that to the extent that exchanges are citing the EU privacy law as a reason not to provide information to DOJ, that they may be facing a court fight. Interesting. Yeah. Well, one other thing that I was thinking about when it comes to this is the fact that I think the big financial institutions are really interested in privacy um, because they'll want that for their transactions. And so I just wondered when you have, um, you know, such a such a big and important industry that has an interest in that, how that will play out against what apparently is DOJ's desire to not have, um, you know, privacy enhanced coins used very much. And kind of in that mix, one other thing I noted about the framework is that even as the report expressed concern about these privacy enhanced coins, it also admitted that many of them uh, have viewing keys that that are, you know, make it possible for, um, for exchanges or other businesses using privacy enhanced coins to 
um, comply with anti-money laundering or counter-terrorist financing regulations. So I wondered if you thought that might would play a role and in general how it will play out with, you know, like I said, traditional financial institutions interested in privacy. Yeah, I mean, I think there's going to be a constant push-pull, you know, in this area um, because DOJ, um, and this plays out in lots of other areas too. Um, it certainly played out, for example, uh, with respect to the DOJ being able to get uh, access to the contents of cell phones that were password protected, you know, completely outside the the crypto space, but it is a constant um, kind of tension between the DOJ attempting to get information pursuant uh, to legal process and um, the interests of uh, the privacy interests that are involved. So, um, and I know that there's been quite a bit of commentary, I think, in in response um, to um, the framework, um, but as part of a conversation that's been going on for a long time about, well, you know, here is this. Um, model of um, a decentralized ledger um, that has uh, privacy benefits, it has anonymity benefits, and, you know, what is the government doing and, and what, uh, to what extent um, do, do all of those uh, privacy ideals, you know, survive in the face of, you know, increased government scrutiny? So one last piece I wanted to ask about is, you know, cryptocurrency obviously is global in nature and the framework even calls out how this global nature, quote, poses significant investigative challenges for U.S. law enforcement agencies and for department prosecutors. And I just wondered from your experience, are foreign countries generally willing to assist the U.S. in cases involving cryptocurrency? Or do you think that we'll find that a lot of these people who engage in crimes involving cryptocurrency will be able to play regulatory arbitrage? Well, I think it depends on the jurisdiction, quite honestly. So in our experience, my office did the Welcome to Video case, which is one of the cases that's highlighted in the framework. It was um, a child pornography case, and we had just fantastic, fantastic uh, international cooperation um, from jurisdictions all around the world. Um, I think that there are other jurisdictions that um, perhaps are less cooperative uh, with U.S. investigators, and so it kind of it really depends. Um, and I think that one of the things that DOJ is really trying to do is um, spread the implementation of uh, the FATF recommendation uh, around the world um, in an effort to try to get more cooperation uh, in this area. And the framework explicitly recognizes that because crypto is global and it's cross-border, um, that there's only so much that one country can do, and that in order to address the risks that DOJ sees, there needs to be international cooperation. All right. Well, this has been such a great and interesting conversation. Thank you so much for coming on Unconfirmed. Thank you so much, Laura. It was a great pleasure. Don't forget, next up is the weekly news recap. Thanks for tuning in to this week's news recap. First headline, Stonebridge bets $115 million on Bitcoin. Continuing the trend set by MicroStrategy and Square, the $10 billion asset management firm Stonebridge Holdings Group revealed in a Forbes article Tuesday that it has invested in 10,000 Bitcoin, currently about $115 million. It has also raised $100 million in funding for its crypto subsidiary, New York Digital Investment Group, or NYDIG, with $50 million in a recently closed round. In a statement to Coindesk, the private firm called Bitcoin its, quote, primary treasury reserve asset. The announcement further illustrates the growing trust in Bitcoin as a safe haven asset. 
Stonebridge's move toward the investment began three years ago when its founders and senior employees began buying Bitcoin at an ever-increasing pace, which in turn generated greater interest from clients. To manage the funds, Stonebridge built execution and custody tools from scratch. Although most NYDIG customers are not public yet, the company confirmed that the $115 million position it manages for Stonebridge is not as largest. Next headline. Bullish signs for Bitcoin. In quite a turnabout, JP Morgan now says that investments like Square's $50 million Bitcoin purchase are, quote, a strong vote of confidence in Bitcoin, and its strategists expect, quote, other payments companies to follow in facilitating client Bitcoin investments or risk being left behind. Meanwhile, Grayscale Investments posted its all-time best quarter ever with over $1 billion invested across its cryptocurrency products. In the OTC markets, BTC and ETH are showing renewed interest following the Square news as attention seems to be moving away from DeFi tokens back to these more tried-and-true crypto assets. Fidelity also published guidance on Bitcoin as an alternative investment, highlighting what it sees as continuing retail interest in Bitcoin, as evidenced by the increasing number of wallets holding less than 10 Bitcoins. Fidelity also laid out annual re- annualized returns for hypothetical portfolios, allocating 1-3% to 3% to BTC. It shows that even in 2018, when Bitcoin's price fell 20, 70%, with regular rebalancing, a portfolio with 3% of Bitcoin set up at the beginning of the year would have outperformed a portfolio without any Bitcoin by 1.1%. And from January 2015 to September 2020, such a portfolio would have outperformed one without Bitcoin by 29%. However, the report notes that Bitcoin's historical pattern of accelerated returns may not continue as it exits early stage behaviors. On the flip side, Bitcoin could instead enter a period of more stable and steady performance, possibly resulting in lower volatility and favorable risk-adjusted terms. Lastly, market analyst Willy Wu posted some charts to Twitter, illustrating why Square and MicroStrategy's Bitcoin purchases are just the tip of the iceberg. He pointed out that there has been a reduction of 250,000 BTC on spot exchanges over the last eight months, signaling that other big investors may be getting into the game. Next headline. CFTC chairman praises Ethereum. Appearing Wednesday at Coindesk's Invest Ethereum Economy Virtual Conference, Commodity Futures Trading Commission Chairman Heath Tarbert discussed how Ethereum and DeFi fit into U.S. securities and commodity laws, but surprisingly, he gushed about Ethereum. Quote, let me just basically say how impressed I am by Ethereum, full stop, period, Tarbert said. When discussing whether a proof of stake Ethereum would be a security or commodity, he deferred to his colleagues at the SEC, saying only, quote, the more decentralized it becomes over time and the more that it effectively runs itself, the more likely it is that it's going to fall within the commodity category and not the securities. Tarbert was equally hesitant to make a firm judgment on the place of DeFi within securities and commodities laws, but said of the Uni token from Uniswap, which was airdrops to its users, quote, if people didn't necessarily pay for it, then it's hard to see at one point there would be an economic loss. Next headline, BitMEX continues bringing in new execs, 79,000 BTC move off platform. As fallout from the BitMEX lawsuits continues, questions remain about what may happen next now that the U.S. government has gone after the Crypto Derivatives Exchange and its former executives. 
According to the Block, legal experts generally agree that BitMEX will avoid a government shutdown and be allowed to continue operations. As for whether other exchanges could face similar charges, they also pretty universally believe that this is likely. What remains a bit hazier is whether or not the U.S. will successfully extradite the defendants who remain at large. Meanwhile, BitMEX CTO Samuel Reed was released from custody after posting a $5 million bond. He pledges to appear in court to comply with sentencing or risk losing the bond. Also, the exchange's parent group, 100X, announced Malcolm Wright had been appointed as chief compliance officer. Wright chairs the advisory council and AML working group of global digital finance. And BitMEX's announcement noted Wright's, quote, extensive background in compliance and anti-money laundering. Coinmetrics points out that unlike other exchanges using the typical hot and cold wallet structure, BitMEX holds all its Bitcoins in cold storage, processing withdrawals once a day. Each BitMEX address is a multi-signature address that requires three of four keys to initiate spending, three of which each is owned by one co-founder, while a fourth is mined. Such a system means that had another founder been incapacitated in any way while Reed was in custody, a freeze of all funds on the platform could have occurred. Now that all three co-founders have stepped down, it can be assumed that their keys have changed ownership. However, such a transition has not been confirmed. So far, users have had no trouble accessing funds, and thousands of users have successfully withdrawn Bitcoin in the days following the announcement of charges. Coinmetrics posted a series of graphs that charted the sharp decrease in Bitcoin held by BitMEX and showed where some of the coins may have gone, with the top recipients being Binance, Gemini, Huobi, and OKX. Next headline. Crypto community pans DOJ's suggestion to create backdoors for encryption. The Department of Justice is calling on tech companies to work with governments to implement encryption so that firms themselves and law enforcement can act against illegal content and activity. Crypto Twitter was not so supportive. Melton Demirez of CoinShares criticized the DOJ's mention of, quote, sexually exploited children to prevent consumers from using end-to-end encrypted technology. In a Twitter thread, Compound General Counsel Jake Travinsky brought up the DOJ's stance to support his contention that a greater ideological war is brewing over self-custody and privacy. Next headline. Filecoin mainnet is live. Filecoin announced its mainnet launch Thursday, reporting successful operations thus far as it entered, quote, a quiet post-launch monitoring period to ensure the network is operating smoothly. The network went live at block 148,888, which Filecoin said in a blog post means, quote, prosperity for life in Chinese, chosen to honor the epic contribution by our Chinese mining community to Files' long-term success. The launch is a long time coming for the $200 million ICO, with speculation that it could become the fastest newly live blockchain to reach a market cap of over $1 billion. Gemini and Kraken both immediately opened trading for Filecoin. Next headline. The Whale Alert team gives a peek behind the tweets. The block interviewed Whale Alert, one of crypto Twitter's most famous accounts, known for tracking addresses that hold and move a large number of tokens. The interview dives into the history of Whale Alert, how the Twitter account straddles the line between privacy and transparency, and goes into a tweet by Whale Alert about a, quote, possible Satoshi-owned wallet that may have caused a drop in the price of Bitcoin. One tidbit they dangled is that, quote, we will be releasing an article in the near future about our views on Satoshi. 
Time for fun bits. The Block launches new dashboards. The Block launched a bevy of dashboards that chart on-chain metrics across Bitcoin, Ethereum, exchanges, spot markets, futures markets, options, social media, web traffic, and more. Plus, there's a whole section on DeFi that looks at stable coins and lending, DEXs, as well as a ton of other data. Kudos to the Block and to the reliable data providers who made these charts possible, such as Coinmetrics, CryptoCompare, Dune Analytics, and others. All right, thanks for tuning in. To learn more about Jesse and the DOJ cryptocurrency enforcement framework, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of this episode. If you're a fan of Unconfirmed and want to help get the word out about our show, please rate and review us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Nuss, Bossy Baker, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.